0: I was kind of turning the mirror on myself and saying, okay, well, if I want my kids to go out there and take risks and really pursue the things that they want to do, am I doing that? Welcome to Model Minority Moms, where we talk about the meaning of success in career, family, and life. We are Jeanette Park, Kate Wong, and Susan Liu. Harvard classmates and Asian American working moms who get real about the pressures of fitting in while standing out.
1: Hello, hello. It's another episode of Model Minority Moms. And today we're going to be talking about what I think our generation is going through, which is like a pre-midlife crisis. Forget about the convertibles. We all want the Teslas. And oh my God, we've been doing this thing for five or ten years or got this degree and we're supposed to be the lawyer or be the doctor. And all of a sudden we just want to quit? Like, what are we supposed to do with our lives? What do we want to be when we grow up? I think a lot of us are still asking these questions. And I just want to put it out there and find out what you two have been thinking about since graduation. Because we got our Harvard degree. We went on to do our things. We collected badges along the way. And then it's like, when is anything enough? When have we even made it? And if we want to change course, are we fucking scared to do so? So yeah. I I just want to talk about career because it takes up so much time in our lives, so much brain space outside of work. And what's the point? You know, like we're all going to die one day and everyone says like, oh, what your coworkers say about you is, or how many hours you worked or how many promotions you got isn't going to be on your tombstone. So why kill yourself over it? Do you live to work or do you work to live? I'd be curious to hear a little bit more about your journeys when you think about yourself and career and what you're going through right now, actually. Like, are you happy? Are you want to change? Are you exploring? You know, it's kind of like dating. Like, are you looking? Are you interested? You want something serious? You want to fool around? So, yeah, Jeanette, you are in a transition period right now. You have lived this career that I've always wanted. Like, you are my alter ego. Like, I wish I did do McKinsey. I wish I did. Okay. I love Yale School of Management, but Sometimes I wish I went to Harvard Business School instead of Yale. And you started all these ventures. You just quit Amazon. And you're in this like new frontier right now, which seems on the outside pretty exciting, but also like hella scary. So I wonder if you can
0: take us through your different careers. And yeah, let's just start there. Sure. And I'll just preface this by saying I feel like we've talked about a lot of different topics on this podcast But somehow this one feels a little bit more uncomfortable than the others. And I don't know why that is. I mean, I'm not going to talk about anything that you can't see already in my LinkedIn profile, but I think I just put a lot of personal meaning in my work and what what I think of as my career. It also feels like very unresolved still, Um, like I haven't really figured it out completely. And it feels extremely personal. And so I'm happy to talk about it because I feel like for me, definitely, and for most of our peers, it takes up so much mind space and I feel like it is under discussed. So I want to talk about it, but just to preface it with this, like, yeah, just by saying it feels uncomfortable. <laughs> and I think part of the reason why I feel uncomfortable is like going through my resume. It's very apparent that I haven't really figured this out, even though I have collected, you know, like these badges that you're talking about or these badges of like conventional, maybe success. Yeah, so after I graduated, I joined McKinsey and I was an analyst there for two years. I was really burnt out by the end. So I remember like typing in the month before I knew I was going to leave, working on an organic farm because to me, that was like the polar opposite of what I had been doing for the last two years. And so there was this thing called woofing. I think it's still around. So we went, oh my gosh, I almost woofed. Yeah. Wait, wait, I totally know what Kate, mean. if you woof, would you go in like
1: the wine and cheese industry woof or like would you actually
2: farm? I was thinking about woofing in um Italy because I was in France at the time. I was trying to figure out what to do after. Uh, right, right. Oh, my God. Jeanette, where did you woof? Yeah.
0: In Maine. Oh, yes. you woofed. You actually woof. Yeah, yeah, I you woof. Know. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you explain woofing. I mean, World, you know, you know woofing, but not no woofing. Worldwide opportunities in organic farming, I believe. Okay, so back up. So I, I did McKinsey and then like, you know, I've always been interested and still am in public policy and social justice issues. So Jake and I actually decided to go teach in lower-income schools, like in disadvantaged neighborhoods in Los Angeles. So woofing was kind of like a two-month gap in between McKinsey and doing that. Wait, wait, but wait. You, you
1: did Teach for America? hmm Yeah. For
0: two years? No, just for a year. One year? See, yeah. Another badge. Is yeah, America. but that one is like, you know, I mean, I think there was like a little bit of a black mark if you didn't finish out your two years. But I did finish out my first year, and I decided that this wasn't something I wanted to do longer term. And I was kind of like ready to move on to the next thing. So I decided to leave after a year. But yeah, so it was like McKinsey, wolfing in Maine for two months on this like very small family organic farm. And then Teach for America, I taught at Locke High School, which is in Watts. Even though that was only a year, I feel like it influenced me pretty deeply because I had grown up in Los Angeles and my family was poor, but South LA is its own dynamic, right? I had kids who were experiencing gun violence, like, you know, who were teenage moms who were coming to school like high because they couldn't deal with other issues going on in their lives. I had kids who were deported in the middle of the school year and then somehow showed up back like a couple weeks later. You know, so I had kids like in crazy, crazy situations. But I taught high school algebra, supposedly. I say supposedly because a lot of my kids weren't actually really ready to learn algebra. But that's what I did for a year. And then, so why didn't you finish the two years? Because I decided that for me, direct service, I think it just wasn't, tapping into what I felt most energized by, right? And I feel like one theme of my career journey has been a little bit of this struggle between what I think I should do, according to a lot of like, you know, different sources versus like what really gave me energy and I enjoyed doing, right? So there was like this part of me that I was always interested in social justice. I think partly because I came up poor, felt like education was this important vehicle for people who are coming from poor families to have better opportunities. But when I actually got into the classroom, I mean, I could teach the material, but the the part of it where it was like connecting with the students and doing that very like hands-on kind of coaching and relationship building, like that just wasn't necessarily my forte or something that gave me energy.
1: And I mean, so- it sounds like your students were going through a lot like it's in a way you're almost like a social worker.
0: Oh my goodness. Yeah, I I feel like we could do a whole episode on just my experience there and Teach for America. And there are many other people, you know, who can speak much more deeply about that whole experience. But I mean, my kids were going through so much. And um, at the time, California had like actually one of the lowest like per student funding. They were giving, I I think our school, like $7,000 per student per year. And I was totally appalled because, you know, our kids, a lot of them were coming to school hungry. A lot of them needed, you know, social services, mental health services, a lot of different things, right? And the school couldn't do it all. And so, yeah, I think it definitely gave me an appreciation for teachers, especially teaching in these types of environments, as well as I think a bit more of like a nuanced view of like some of the policy questions around education. Like I said, I feel like that's a whole nother area that we could talk a lot about. But essentially, when I left McKinsey, I had a couple of like hypotheses I wanted to test out regarding my career, right? So I thought, okay, you know, I want to maybe do something more directly related to education or social justice. That was my Teach for America stint. And then in college, I had also thought about potentially pursuing a PhD in economics. I was like, you guys all know by now, a huge nerd. I was taking a lot of research-oriented econ classes in college, and I had had a few professors like kind of nudge me towards potentially going to grad school. So I came back to Boston, was a research fellow for a year. And then I started applying for grad school and then decided that I actually did not want to go to grad school and become an academic, turned around and started applying for business school.
2: Wait, wait, wait. can pause, rewind, because I feel like from applying to PhD programs and like business school, there are very few people who would be in the same pool as you to consider both programs. Can you elucidate why you decided the PhD program wasn't right for you versus an MBA program?
0: Yeah, there were two parts of it. One, honestly, I was wrestling with this idea that I was going to go to a grad school program and basically earn like $35,000 a year for five or six years to potentially get a job that was not that great. Because even if you come out of a PhD program from Harvard, the job market is such that you might end up in the middle of nowhere teaching students who don't want to listen to you. Or I could go get the same job that I could like coming out of two years of business school. And so those were kind of the options. And I think other contexts, it's not my parents had just gotten divorced. My mom had moved in with us. We were all living in a two bedroom apartment together. And I felt really stressed out, like in an existential way, in a way that I had difficulty articulating at the time, saying this was the right decision for me to make to go to grad school and not earn like the highest level of salary I could in the market while I took on this responsibility of taking care of my mom and sharing that burden with Jake. I think that was a big part of it. It wasn't actually something I fully articulated to myself. I think it's something I definitely felt, but I couldn't articulate it at the time. And I probably couldn't articulate until many years later. But I think that was one like driving factor. And then I think the other thing is the attractiveness to me about academia was this like I had gone into it feeling like it was a space where there was freedom to explore a lot of different ideas. But actually being in it made me feel like I had some of the same frustrations that I saw working with large corporations, which was that actually a lot of the work is very incrementalist. You know, you could go out there and pitch like this wild idea, but like if your colleagues don't agree with you, then it goes nowhere, right? So like the majority of papers are just like honing methodologies that have already been around for a long time or like scrounging for data, you know, to do that one additional experiment. I didn't see a lot of people really putting themselves out there to pursue these crazy ideas and some of them who did. Kind of got sent to these lower tier teaching institutions, and their work wasn't really recognized until decades later, potentially. And so I felt really discouraged and not that inspired by that. And I think the two issues are kind of linked, right? I think throughout my career choices, I've always had this struggle between one side of me that wants to take a bigger risk and then another side of me that I, I have a lot of fear around that. I think partly because of like my anxieties around money and security from my childhood. I I say those two things are linked because I think if I had overall a more kind of comfortable orientation to risk, maybe I could have gone into academia knowing that, yes, this is the way academia is, but I could still take that big swing and just like risk, you know, maybe not having it land the right way immediately. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, it's just kind of like entrepreneurs and like Why do white men go at it and start startups at a higher rate than all these other demographic groups? And it's because they have a safety net. They have a fallback plan. And here you're you've got other elements of pressure to actually inform you what you're going to do. It's not exactly what you want, but you're going to do something else because of all those other things.
0: Yeah. And I think the third thing is I did feel like I love the world of ideas. But I also felt frustrated, like, would I be satisfied by just putting ideas out there? Or do I want to be closer to like the quote unquote real world where some like my work is actually having more of a impact in people's lives? So I think for those three reasons, I put like the screeching halt on my grad school applications and started applying for business school. And I was really lucky because I got into HBS and I enjoyed my business school experience, but I probably enjoyed all the wrong parts of it. <laughs>
1: Which you you like, enjoyed the content and not the yeah, like,
0: Right. Like I love the school part of it. Like I love the discussions. I mean, I did. I didn't make friends and get to know people, but I feel like that wasn't the central part for me. Whereas like for a lot of people, that is it. Right. And so I love business school, but I probably love the wrong part of it. Wait, wait, wait. When you were in business school, is this right? Did you start a dress rental? Start that out? was before business school. Yeah. Oh, whoa, I didn't know about that one. Yeah. For yeah. bridesmaids dresses? Yeah. So all along the way, I had been starting like these different projects. Some of them had traction, but they never really like scaled up to anything too massive. So I had a friend who wanted to start this online consignment store for Bridesmaids dresses. So the idea was, you know, you wear your bridesmaid dress only once. They're so expensive. Like, why can't you put it online and resell it? She and I started this website called BridesmaidsTrade.com. And it was around for several years, not around anymore. But we did that. And that was pre-business school. And then while I was in business school, I also tested out some other ideas. Like I had this little Chrome extension called Zocalo, which I had this idea of like people being able to put comments on whatever websites for other people to discover when they get there. Ooh. But like, (laughs) it didn't work out, but I thought it was a cool idea at the time. And then after business school, Jake always says, you know, I should have pushed you harder to go and do something else. But uh, I actually went back to McKinsey because I had a lot of loans from business school and I had already signed this agreement with McKinsey that they would front the loan to pay for my business school. And if I went back for two years, then they would repay it, which is a really, really great deal.
1: That is some negotiation right there because you weren't even working for them at the time, right? When you applied to business school.
0: Yeah, but that offer kind of is open for a couple of years after you finish the analyst program. So even if you don't go to business school right away, like that's an option for many people. And so I took it and then I went back and um, was a senior associate there and then a, an engagement manager. And I learned a lot. You know, I think McKinsey really honed a lot of. The skills i used in my other jobs and i really love the people there and i love going from project to project and just you know absorbing all the information on on every project you started so that part of the work i really liked what i didn't like is the speed at which you know things moved with a lot of these clients i was serving because they were so large it took them a lot of time to make decisions and often i think the risk appetite was like not really aligned to mine. You said and it-
1: we were working 80 hours a week, right?
0: Oh, yeah. And then the work hours were, I, I think at that time, it didn't matter to me that much. But I could see if we start, wanted to start a family, I didn't see it as compatible with the kind of time I wanted to spend with my kids, right?
2: Can I just cut in? Do you guys remember there was this hilarious viral video right around the time, uh, soon after we graduated from college, about it was bankers versus consultants? Do you guys ever see that video?
0: Oh, yeah, I remember that. I it was just, like, it was when you it said called? 80
2: hours, Jeanette, I was just thinking, oh my gosh, in that video, they'd be like, yo, we're working the same hours. But basically, like the bankers earn 3x as much as like consultants. And it, it's hilarious. I'll, if you guys haven't watched it, just YouTube, Bankers and consultants, it is. Oh my yeah.
1: God, I think I I got to rewatch it. And, and we, for the record, we graduated in 2007. Okay.
0: Right, right. So it's like, we were actually very lucky. I think 07, in many ways, like we're like a very lucky class because we avoided the crash, the risk, cr- crash right? The job market looked really different for the, class coming after us. And so I could see the lifestyle wasn't compatible. There were women who were definitely making it work, but either I felt like I couldn't honestly handle that level of pressure and like be a calm presence for my family. So it was a little bit about me, but like also the situation that many of these women were in, right? Some of the women that I saw who were making it work had husbands who had like more flexible, maybe slightly more chill jobs. And that wasn't like really a conversation that Jake and I had explicitly had. And I think generally I found that I wasn't doing that well personally, working so much. I I could do it, but I was often really cranky and irritable. And I just didn't like being like that all the time. The other part of it is I wanted to build something that was more scalable and that could reach beyond what I could directly touch, which in professional services is not really how things work. Right. And so I switched to uh, actually a product manager role within McKinsey. I didn't know this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I was doing some things in their healthcare analytics area. And and then I left because I wanted to spend more time pursuing like these different entrepreneurial ideas that I had. And I did work on some of them, including this business called Somafare, which was a meal service concept targeting working families. Test to the food. I was at her house in Cambridge
1: at the time and I got to eat some of the meals and they were really great. But you were thinking about like, hey, we I will drop these off to preschools. And these parents can like, you, you were thinking about the parent market when you actually were pregnant.
0: Yeah. So I got pregnant a week after I left. I quit my job.
1: Oh my God.
0: And then I found out five weeks later that I was pregnant and Jake and I were like, oh my gosh, should we just go and ask for your job back so that you could take maternity leave? So we didn't do that. And I didn't get maternity leave for my first child. It was good in some ways and challenging in others. Good in that I had flexibility in my work schedule, you know, to take care of a newborn and all of that. But like challenging in the sense that one, I had to divide up my time and be much more disciplined about it because there was nobody else enforcing that for me. And then secondly, I think with regards to trying to start a new venture, I knew that I would be two or three months out of service, right, at least after I gave birth. And so especially with the type of business I was running at the time, it's really hard you can't really tell your clients, like I'm gonna be shutting this down for two to three months, right? Or it's just very hard to say that because people just expect a continuity of service. But I did do it. So I ran the service for I think about like eight or nine months while I was pregnant. And then I took three months off I thought about going back and restarting it again, decided not to. And I think part of the decision there is that type of business. I'm like, you should have thought about it ahead of time. But the business that I was running, like involved a lot of logistics, managing delivery drivers, managing the cooking, the ingredient procurement, all of that. And it wasn't that conducive to having a young child at the same time. And I think the other part of it is, you know, it's kind of like this recurring theme of responsibility that I feel, which is my mom's still living with us. Now we have a kid, we might want a second kid, you know, to not like, what are you doing? Like, you should just go and get a stable, like, well-salaried job so that you could provide a stable environment for your kids and your family. So I think that was part of the music that was playing in the back of my head. So I, I went back to corporate life again. I took a job at Amazon Web Services as a product manager. I learned a lot from each of these jobs, so I don't see it as Hey, can you, Jenny, can you explain? Because I remember at the time, at least you told me one of the
2: reasons why you were attracted to that specific position with that team was because there were other parents on that team who you felt could understand if you needed to reschedule something because of a kid situation, which I think is really important. I mean, at the time I didn't have a kid, so I didn't think about something like that. But when you told me, I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Like maybe more people should think about that. I don't know if people do, but I thought that was really neat.
0: Yeah, and I think that was part of it, right? And I think it kind of dovetailed with my move away from professional services as well, right? Because in professional services, you're often on call for your client and everything is very urgent. Whereas I think often in a product world, you're building things that can be used without a person, you know? So it's like you build something, you release it. And yes, sometimes there are bugs. Sometimes there's emergencies. But at least from a product manager perspective, you're not on call in the same way as you are as a management consultant. And so that was part of what was attractive to me, not only for my kids, but actually like for my own kind of well-being and mental health. And so that was one thing that was attractive about going down this career path. And then you're also right. Like when I interviewed with the team, I noticed that a lot of the people had kids and families. And so it felt like it was a culture where things were a little bit more flexible and that there would be like understanding if I had an emergency, I could tell my teammates, hey, my kid had an accident at daycare or whatever. I need to go pick him up early today and I can't make this meeting. So that was a factor. And while I was at Amazon, I also had my second child, my daughter, and then some things changed, right? I think my husband, he's still in management consulting. And And it was for a while, I wasn't sure like how that was going to pan out if he was going to stay or if he was going to leave. But some things like change where it kind of became more apparent that he will be staying for a good while. And so it made our financial situation much more predictable and sustainable in a way where we could live on his income. And so I was reassessing, you know, what I was doing. In some ways, like I wasn't loving what I was doing at Amazon, like the pace of things and the autonomy and the flexibility to chase my interests just wasn't really well lined to my position. And then I think also we discussed this on a different episode, but like having kids trying to think about like what you want for their work and what are you going to communicate to them about how you make those decisions. I think I was kind of like turning the mirror on myself and saying, okay, well, if I want my kids to go out there and take risks and really pursue the things that they want to do, am I doing that? And I think for me, my order of priorities was financial stability first. And then once you have that, go do the other things you want to do. Um, And I am in a very fortunate position where the first checkbox is pretty much taken care of unless like something really radically changes about our financial situation, which like the paranoid Korean part of me is always like, yeah, there could be a war, there could be a natural disaster, like any shit can go down at any second. But like in a reasonable scenario, right? Like we'll be fine. And so I had to ask myself, like, honestly, is this the thing you want to be doing? Or are you just scared of going out and floundering out there, trying to figure it out, you know, like get messy, like have to answer other people's uncomfortable questions, like all of that stuff. And I decided if my kids were in my position, I would tell them, to go out and just figure it out, try different things, do the things that you want to do, right? I'm in my late thirties now. Maybe I have 30 more years of working life left or less. And so it just felt like, yeah, it's uncomfortable. There's a lot of issues still there that are not resolved. I don't know if I'll find success but go out there and spend your time doing the things that you want to have accomplished at the end of your life. And for me, that wasn't making it to a top in any of these corporate career paths that I had previously been in. So yeah, that's a little bit of my story. Sorry, it's so convoluted and messy. I mean, like, it would only be straightforward if you're like, hey,
1: I was an econ major and then I got a PhD in econ and now I teach econ. Then I'd be like, okay, which is like a very small percentage of the world, right? Okay, so I'm curious. So now you are in your exploration phase when people are like, so what are you up to? Like, what do you say?
0: Mm, Yeah, it's such a complicated question because people will say, oh, so what do you do with your time? (laughs) Right, because my (laughs) kids both go to daycare. And I think there is this part of me that still feels a little bit of guilt or that I'm doing something wrong because I am not spending my time in a way that's earning income right now, but yet my kids go to daycare, you know? So I feel like at some level society or I've just internalized this expectation that either I'm like working because I have to, or if I don't have to work, then I should be with my kids. Right. But I try to reframe it for myself. Like Well, if I was a guy and I was doing a startup, then nobody would say, well, why are your kids going to daycare? Or let's say like, even if I was disabled and I couldn't take care of my kids all day and so they needed care, like this just would be different. So why are my needs for wanting to pursue this thing even if it's not clear, even if I'm still figuring it out, like, why is that less valid to take this time for myself? My kids are in great care. They love their teachers. They love their friends. And this also helps me be a better mom to them.
1: I know know you and I talk about career a lot. And I was like, what do you want? Like, is it an entrepreneurial thing? Is it joining a team? Is it starting your own thing? Is it the Forbes 40 under 40 list, which you have to apply for, you know, like, what do you want next? Like, how, how are you going to know you found the thing that you're looking for? And I remember you said, I just want to ride a wave. And I, I know you are also a surfer. And I was just wondering if you could tell our listeners what that means. Mm-hmm. For you.
0: Yeah. And just to clarify, I would say I'm kind of like an advanced beginner surfer. So, like, I'm not. Why do we have to qualify this? <laughs> I just want to say I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: in case anyone's looking for, like, <laughs> Olympic competitors, I'm not available right now. Okay. Keep going.
0: I just- Women have to qualify all the time. Keep going. Yeah, I I think it just would be fun to participate in something that has momentum of its own. I mean, I think that's not the only criteria, though, because there could be like a trend towards like some strand of pornography that's like becoming really popular. But do I want to get on that wave? Like, no. But I think there's an element of it, which is it would be really fun to participate in something that already has some momentum of its own. I think the other criteria for me is I have kind of these perspectives on things happening in the world and I kind of want to express them whether it's through a medium like this podcast or writing or even through a business venture that's providing a service that's different from what exists out there and so I think that's another part of it which is almost like self expression but meets like market demand (laughs) Right? you kind of have to find that happy medium and you don't really know if it's there or not but you're kind of feeling out if it's there if it exists
1: final question to you before we hear all about Kate's story here. Do you have to be the CEO?
0: I don't think I have to be the CEO, but I think that if I were to participate in something where other people are also founders, then we would have to be very, very like-minded and we would have to have like a really good working relationship. So like this podcast, right? I feel like we are co-founders. We operate and make decisions together. That's worked out well, but in terms of like the other projects I'm working on, you know, some people are like, I need to find a co-founder or I need to have somebody I'm working on this with. For me, that's not necessarily a criteria because I know one of the things that I struggled with in my previous roles is the lack of autonomy and independence. And I'm very wary of trading that away because why would I trade that away like, and not be paid, but also have to you know, rely on so many other people to get anything done or decisions made. So I don't have to be the CEO, but just this concept of, of autonomy and being with like-minded people, I'm very sensitive to that. Yeah, it's so
1: fascinating. Everything that you shared. It's just like I remember taking these career surveys in high school and college. Like, I think I was always supposed to be a firefighter or a nurse or something <laughs> and try to coach other college students. It's just like how to figure out what your non-negotiables are how to figure out what is it the thing that makes you come alive that you're intrinsically motivated by. You're so curious. And I think the fact that you do know, like, you know what? Autonomy. Like, I have to have it. And now that we've seen, that's what's in common with your story thread here. So it's like, it's so important to figure that out. So thanks for sharing your story, Jeanette.
0: Yeah. And I'm sure there's lots to talk about there. Oh, yeah. This baseline. This baseline. Yeah. Establishing. Yeah. Right. And there's probably other threads that haven't come up. But yes, let's move on. Kate. So Kate,
1: like... What happened to you? You know, I, I remember we knew each other in college and then all of a sudden now we both moved to Seattle and we both have kids. So all of a sudden we were hanging out a lot more. What happened for you
2: in terms of what you studied, what you pursued leading up to now? Yeah, well, I think, you know, it's, it's funny because I have often gotten the question from even friends, college friends. They don't really know what I do unless it's related to a person or an entity that they're familiar with. And I'll explain why shortly. So before I went to college, I actually really wanted to be a doctor for many years since I was in fourth grade, actually. But for reasons I won't go into now, I decided before I went to Harvard that I didn't want to do pre-med. I didn't want to be a doctor. Anymore. Uh, so I kind of went in being like, anything goes. Uh, I was really interested, actually, in Chinese literature. Um, I- wait, 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 wait. Time out. Before you even went to college,
1: you were a published author.
2: Oh, yeah. So, so. I've always been interested in writing, you know, my dad has actually has been a published writer in China since I was in middle school. His books were pretty popular, like essays. So we thought it might be fun to collaborate on a book about how American high school is so different from Chinese high schools. And especially for him as a first generation immigrant father, I mean, it was like a foreign world to him, right? And I think there were a lot of parents in a similar boat who didn't understand what was going on. I'm sure probably the same with your families, like, what's happening in high school in America? So it was like a cool, you know, I would write about one topic, like going to prom. And then my dad would be like, this is what I think. And then it was published. China, went on a book tour the summer before Harvard. And yeah, it was a bestseller. It did really well. I still keep getting fan mail after all these years from like oh. LinkedIn, Facebook. Can we get this on Amazon? No, unfortunately, it's out of print, but I have been playing with the idea of self-publishing it. in like a bilingual format, like English, because I wrote in English and then it was translated into Chinese. And then, of course, my dad wrote in Chinese.
1: I mean, and there could be some really interesting, like what you're thinking about for your kid and
2: how that's evolved. So- Anyway. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So so I did that, you know, before I went to college. And, and you know, so I was always very interested in, in literature and writing. And so I thought, OK, well, maybe I can think about pursuing that. So I actually declared as my um, concentration, a.k.a. Harvard speak for major East Asian studies freshman year. But, you know, this is interesting because like my parents, basically, my dad was like, why am I paying money for white people to teach you about China? More or less what he said. So it's not like they forced me to change, but you know how the Asian parental pressure is kind of like okay, I'm not going to force you, but like, you don't really have a choice. So my dad was like, oh, how about, you know, and then like throughout a few, here's our other acceptable concentrations that I won't mind paying for basically. I mean, he didn't say it like that, but basically that was his intent. And so I settled on psychology because I had also been interested in psychology in high school, took a class. Um, and, you know, honestly, I would say that's a huge regret for me. And actually my dad also regrets it now because he realized like, dude, Paying that much money for you to go to Harvard, it kind of doesn't matter if you study psychology or East Asian study. You know what I mean? So now he's like converted, but too late for me. Anyway, so uh, and then because I wasn't like super happy, I think, in my major, it, it's a very large department. I was also taking French, so I actually made that into my language citation, a.k.a. Harvard speak for a minor, sort of. And I was just not like that happy at Harvard. I feel like it was a big shock for me. We can talk about this in another episode. Um, so I was kind of like, I don't really know what I want to do, but I was very interested in education, the idea of higher education, because I felt like it was, I mean, for me, college was the most transformational stage of education that I'd gone through. I, I felt like I didn't really love, you know, elementary school, high school, whatever. But college was really where I felt very challenged intellectually and met a lot of interesting people. And so I, you know, volunteered uh, at the undergraduate minority recruitment program at the admissions office all four years years. I was like the Asian American co-coordinator. And then I also studied abroad in France, right? Because I, I didn't mean to study French in college, but I just kind of got into it. I was also really depressed. I think I mentioned this in a previous episode and like wanted to take a leave of absence for a year. of course, Asian parents wouldn't let you do that because it's embarrassing and shameful. So my rebellion was to secretly apply to study abroad in Paris for a semester and then didn't tell my parents until after I got in. And I was like, I'm going. And of course, you know, Asian parents are like, what? I have to pay money for you to like go to Paris, but I'm paying the same Harvard tuition, but like not getting Harvard education anyway. But it was really transformational for me because I think being in a context that was not America, that was not China, very different. It caused me to think a lot of different things about my identity, what I wanted to do with life, exposed to a different pace of life. I mean, you can say all the stereotypes about France, but there are a lot of different values there, cultural and otherwise. And I realized I was like, oh, I actually would like to come back after graduation because I didn't want to be in the same places where a lot of our classmates were post-graduation, which is New York, D.C. and nothing wrong with the jobs. I think I also submitted my resume for like consulting and banking just because everybody else was. And you're kind of like, OK, I don't want to miss this boat. But my heart was not in it. And obviously, I didn't get any interviews. So because my GPA wasn't high enough, I think. But I I applied actually for um, a legitimate job as a translator at a Parisian translation agency for after graduation, because I just wanted to go back to Paris and kind of continue that intellectual and cultural exploration. And it was a legit job. Like I had a real work visa for France um, and I was sitting in an office translating from French into English. Um, But I would say that I think translation is kind of like you have a really steep learning curve. And after that, it sort of flattens out and you kind of just kind of learn over the years. I wasn't there really for the job. The job was the means for me to kind of access this different life that I wanted to have after graduation. But I was still like, I don't really know what to do after. Like I was interested in education, but also like I was very interested in public health, but had never really had an opportunity to work in that because of my previous, you know, wanting to be a doctor. So actually after a year in France, well, actually I decided I might want to become an admissions officer. Long story short, I didn't get a job. I know I'm kind of glad I didn't. Uh, Mostly because I, I enjoyed working the admissions office, but I'm glad I did not get the job ex post facto for various reasons. So then I was like, okay, well, maybe I can go do public health stuff. And a friend of mine, a couple of friends actually had worked for the Clinton Foundation in Beijing. They were like really big, like kind of around the time we were graduating. You know, yeah, it was another badge like job, if you want to call it right Intern or work for the Clinton Foundation. Oh, 100%. HIV AIDS Initiative in right. China. Whatever. Anyway, so that was definitely a badge and I knew it. You know, it was very easy to get the, they called it an internship because, you know, Harvard and all that. So I moved to Beijing. And again, it was like the job was interesting. I learned a lot about public health. It was also a very politically fraught time within the foundation in China. I think that kind of turned me off in general to working in that environment, like a foundation you know, public service help. I just was like, this is, I'm not doing anything, you know, but I enjoyed my lifestyle there. It was really great. I was kind of, I was really poor. So actually my parents had to support me partly with like some money because you don't really earn that much. It's like Do, one of those things. Do you know, they like- give you a lot of shit for that? I'm um, not really, my mom didn't really care. My dad was like, I don't understand why you want to come to China because his whole thing was that he was like, why do you want to be a big fish in a small pond when you can be a small fish in a big pond, which would be the U.S., right? Which is ironic because he had also since then moved to Beijing to start his own company. So he was there at the same time that I was. But my parents were like, generally, I think, my mom was always like, OK, just don't do anything bad, basically. And she liked that, even though it was public service industry. And my dad was like too busy with his company. So he would just occasionally hand me some money and be like, how are you doing? OK, bye. And like we'd have, you know, lunch or whatever. So during the time, the bonus was I kind of interested in migrant education uh, in China, uh, which is basically... Long story short, Chinese people uh, migrate to cities from the rural areas to find work. But in China, you are you have a household registration that ties you to where you were born. And it's very hard to change that. So it's hard for children who go with their parents to the city to access, at the time, like public education. So there would often be like private, really bad, like schools that you could go to. Um, and it was a serious problem. So I thought it was really interesting, very different. So I was like, you know, maybe I should just take this further. Kind of at the time Jeanette was thinking like, except I wasn't as I like think analytical as Jenna, I was like, I think it would be nice to go to graduate school in education. Maybe think about doing a PhD. But for the for a PhD in education, the good thing is you have to do a master's first. You can't just like directly go into a PhD in education. You have to get your MED, master's in education. So I was like, okay, let me go. I got accepted to Harvard because basically it's really easy. If you went to Harvard for undergrad, Harvard Graduate School of Education is not gonna reject you. Like, so there's it's like that's good to let, know. Let's be honest here, okay? I'm I'm just gonna put it out there and You know, I kind of had a crisis. Like I showed up. I don't think many people know this, but I had already paid the deposit. I showed up at school. Uh, You know, I moved back from Beijing and I went to my first few classes because I had declared this particular area, like international education policy. Right. And I was just like, I am just not into this. I didn't like the program director that much. Oops. Maybe I shouldn't say that. (laughs) He's still there. I didn't like the class. And I was like, I made a mistake. I want out. So I actually went to the admissions office and I was like, "Uh, can I like drop out? Uh, like I literally was like, I don't think this is the right thing for me. And then they're like, "Are you, is this a prank?" Like, no, they were, like I they were my favorite actress. actress. No, 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 they were like very. They were like, "Well, you know, what is it that you don't feel comfortable with, or what is it you don't like?" So I explained to them I didn't love the courses. Like, I'm really interested in like migrant education, but I feel like this thing is not. Anyway, so basically, either they talked me into it or I talked myself into it. But basically, I changed my focus from the program like international education policy to specialized study, which if you remember from Harvard undergrad, you know how you create your own special concentration? Yeah, you're just wandering. But yeah, exactly. (laughs) So they convinced me to stay. But I mean, ostensibly, my focus was like uh, migrant education, which I was still interested in. But the thing was, it was so loosey goosey. You literally they had no stipulations other than you had to take like a certain amount of classes at the Ed School, but I could cross register, so I cross registered for classes at the Harvard Graduate School of just like the Harvard Graduate School, right? Like the, the GSAS Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. Like I took a Chinese literature class, I took a Portuguese class. Um, I also took a Chinese China class at the Harvard Kennedy School. It was awesome. Basically, my favorite classes were the ones where they were not like at the Ed School. <laughs> I mean, there were good classes at the Ed School too, but it was not great. I, let's just be honest. That one year of time, I would advise for anyone considering a one. your master's program, please know what you're going to do when you come out of it. Because literally as soon as you start, you need to figure out what shit you're going to do. Like when you graduate, cause it's like a frigging nine month program. Right. And I did not think about that. I was just thinking. Like, oh, I'm really interested in this. Like, maybe I could do a PhD. I figured out I didn't want to do a PhD. so That was like, okay I can't do that after graduation. I was like, uh, this whole migrant education thing, it's like very crowded. And if you don't want to do a PhD, then you have to go work for like a grassroots nonprofit. And I was like, uh, I don't know if I want to go work for a nonprofit. Like, you know, based on my experience, the Clinton Foundation, which was already a large nonprofits. I was just like, I actually don't know what I'm going to do after graduation. So I was just applying to literally everything. You know how most people, they apply to like the consulting firms as undergrads. And then you go in right after undergrads. So I was like, I had a panic and I was like, ah, I don't know what to do. Let me just apply to all the same consulting firms that my friends are working at, but like two years out of college or three years out of college,
1: which and you're crazy. like on all, you're on all these. Websites and,
2: and you're yeah. like, you're like, I could, I could do this. Yeah, I Definitely like, I'm this. off. First of all, I'm off cycle because they have very specific cycles. I'm off like I'm not even your regular candidate, like be either recruiting from undergrad or like MBA sometimes, you know, like other graduate schools. But luckily I had enough friends where I could be like, yo, can you at least like put my resume in there? Right. So that's the benefit of the Harvard. I will admit this is where Harvard really came in, because if I had just submitted my resume online, nobody would have given a fuck about me. But at least I got invited for first round interviews at a bunch of different consulting firms. And I actually even made it to the end with one. And then I was also at the same time interviewing with like, because I thought, you know, we had some friends in Silicon Valley working at Google and like Facebook. And I was like, oh, maybe that'll be cool. Literally, I had no fucking clue what I wanted to do. And so I was just like, let me just try all these things that, you know, my classmates tried like three years ago. But now anyway, and then I also, oh, by the way, that I didn't mention, I was also dating someone at the time and he like was in Chicago. So then I was like, oh, let me go move to Chicago while I figure, you know, I like do my job search. Anyway. So basically what ended up happening was I did find a job and in a completely different industry than I really imagined, but actually proved to be one of those things where Kate fucks up in life and doesn't know what to do, but actually it ends up working out. But I would not recommend that as an intentional tactic for people. I would just say, yeah, don't. I mean, I would not advise my daughter to do that per se. But basically, I ended up uh, finding a job at a really large fundraising consulting firm. No, not the kind of fundraising that you do for like private equity fundraising. I mean, like nonprofit fundraising, you know, like nonprofits need money. Where do you think they get the money from? Well, they have to fundraise through philanthropy. And I didn't know at the time, but apparently there are companies whose only job is to help like institutions, not for profit institutions, fundraise money. And so I actually thought at the time that it would be a cool intersection of my interests in like the public domain, but it was a private company. So it was a consulting firm. And so I felt like for me, I'm a very efficient person and I'm, I had a really hard time with the working dynamic, the foundations and nonprofits volunteered or worked at before. I'll be really honest.
0: Oh, I sorry. had a similar experience. Yeah. So
2: Jeanette knows what I mean. Oh, sorry. Hold on. I skipped over a whole part where <laughs> between graduation, I forgot. Sorry. Uh, between graduation from grad school, like my ed degree and finding that job, which is about like seven, eight months, I was actually volunteering for my friend's nonprofit. Actually, you guys know Ashwin, right? Ashwin Kaja. He's yeah. Hi, Ashwin, if you're listening to this. So he had started this really cool microfinance tourism nonprofit where he'd bring tourists who wanted to support local economies to places in specifically in Mexico and then in Tanzania. And they could, you know, tour the. Uh, entrepreneurs, local women entrepreneurs, like their businesses. And then the tourist group would choose uh, where to donate their money at the end, like which entrepreneur they wanted to support.
1: I mean, that sounds wonderful, but it sounds awful because then the women are competing against each other. Uh, it's and of it's funny, like a, a puppy in
2: a pound moment where it's like, what? Well, happy to see you. Well, I think there was also like a part where if you were part of that, you could, you would still end up being able to access some funds. I forget the exact details, but I thought that was really, and you know, microfinance was also quote, unquote, a hot thing. Thing So hot. Oh my guys. Like, like I, I, it sounds like I didn't have my shit together, but even when I didn't have my shit together, I still press all the hot button. You know what I mean? Clinton Foundation, microfinance. It's just like tick, 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 tick. You know, it's so predictable. And now I can laugh at it. But back then it was like, I thought it was cool. Do you know what I mean?
1: Cutting edge.
2: I know, cutting edge. But I I do think (laughs) that is one of the, I wouldn't say downsides, but it it is almost limiting because you look at these things, at least for us at the time, that were like, cool, but you don't think of anything else, right? Because these are the things that you see your classmates, your peers doing. Uh, but the worst thing is that you think you're being special, but you're not really. Like now I know I was totally not special, okay? And a lot of our peers at the time, what they were doing is, do you guys remember TechnoServe? I think they worked with McKinsey. Right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So basically TechnoServe. Such a badge. Yep. Or, or maybe it was with some other consulting firm. Basically, no, you worked it. for a management consulting firm for a couple of years and you feel bad that you were contributing to like, you know, public good. Yeah, yeah public yeah. good. So then you'd go volunteer with this organization called TechnoServe that would take these like bright eyed, bushy tailed, 20 something young consultants to like Africa, to Asia, to <laughs> South America, and to help like, you know, restructure whatever nonprofit thing was there. Anyway, so I'm just saying I was the only person doing it. A lot of us were doing it. But now that I look back, I'm just like, I see the value in that. But I also wonder how many of us were really deluding ourselves. Right. How much and how, how much is serving you, exactly, serving you are versus act, the client? Exactly. And I don't think there's anything wrong with if you want to discover for yourself what it means to do that. Right. But you have to be I feel like we were not honest. At least I felt like I wasn't about the inherent selfishness of the motive. Did I really care about like, you know, HIV, AIDS in China? Maybe. But like I was more interested in understanding the issue to fund my own self-discovery. And I think that was it For a lot of us, I'm going to put it out there right now. You know, hate me if you want, but there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you have to discover, you have to do it. But I'm just saying, at the time, though, I felt like I was deluding myself and thinking I was like this philanthropic, like I'm going to save the world person. And it's like a savior complex that now I look back and I'm just like, oh, cringe. Like, okay, I didn't know any better at the time, but we were all, so many of us were doing it, you know? yeah, but you know, that idealism dies. So okay, yeah. well, at least now. Yeah, so it's <laughs> kind of, it's cute to have. It is, it's cute to have. And I hope people at some point wake up, right? And and I don't think idealism is a bad thing. I think you can use it I and mean, you can transform it into something that's more pragmatic, which I think Jeanette sounds like she did a much better job with figuring things out before actually, like, I don't know. She didn't I don't know
0: if I did.
2: I don't know. I mean, you yeah. have had like a more- strategic steps. I was just kind of like, this sounds good.
0: That Doesn't, sounds good. Didn't feel strategic to me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Okay.
2: Well, well so, so that's funny. So anyway, so I started this, this job out of Chicago and it was really interesting. I, I was really good. I'm not going to lie. Okay. I hate me. My former colleague, if you ever listened to this, but I was really good. Cause let's be honest. I was like top dog, right? They used to make fun of me before I came. They were like, okay, oh, you know, before you came, it was all like Notre Dame versus, uh, I forget what other school is around there. And then they started making fun of me because I was the only person who went to an Ivy League school there at my office in in like Chicago. Uh, but I was definitely like star consultant. You know what I mean? Like I was doing all this stuff. And then my boss was amazing. Like best boss I've ever had. He just gave me so many awesome opportunities. If you are listening to this, Pete, you are like the best boss ever. Then I got the fourth. <laughs> oh God, I sound so, I have a serious problem. If you haven't noticed, like I have kind of a short attention span with things. So I got, I really love like learning new things, but then- when I get into it, I'm just like, hmm, maybe I need to like try something else. So then I like really miss China. I was kind of like my relationship with my then boyfriend was kind of like, meh, I went to my boss and I was like, you know, this might be a little weird, but do you think I could ask for a sabbatical? Okay, guys, I would not have been at my job like I've been at my job less than a year. Who fucking <laughs> asked for a sabbatical? Millennials, <laughs> millennials. No, but I thought I could do it because I was such a good consultant. I knew they like I could get away with it, right? And he actually, to his credit, he was like, you know, sure, if you if that will help you. So I actually asked for a sabbatical. Get this to go work at my dad's company, which is doing really well. In Beijing for like three months or something, so I said bye bye. And his company is totally different. It's not fun. It's in higher education. Basically, the company provides data analytics and institutional data services for universities in China, right? So it's pure higher education data analytics, but also consulting, but not like fundraising. So I go there for three three months. So fun, you know. Ashwin's there too. Like a bunch of our friends from college are there. Like I really like working in China. It's Again, it's because it's different. It's new, right? You know, three months is not really enough to like make you feel jaded about anything. And so I was like, maybe I should come back to China again. So I went back to the US, uh, back to my regular job. And this was where finally people maybe started understanding what I did for a living because I got the opportunity to work with a really big client. You guys know Steve Shortsman of Blackstone Group?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So he um, wanted to start a program at Tsinghua University, which is like the MIT of China. And he wanted to fundraise $200 million. And he donated $100 million. And then we were supposed to donate. We were supposed to, he hired my company, CCS, to fundraise the additional $100 million. But guess what? In six months. So, and then, so my boss pimped me out. He was like, oh, well, Kate, like, she's Chinese. She just came back from China. So then I moved to New York because Steve is in New York. I worked out of, you know, I was like literally 20 feet from Steve Schwartzman and working with my colleague and it was very heady. And I feel like this sort of encapsulates why in retrospect, maybe I made certain decisions to do things that seem kind of random. For me, I'm a little bit like Jeanette where I'm looking for like this feeling of I wanna do something new that's really different. It doesn't matter. The industry matters less to me or even the function, like I just want to be part of something that is different, that is new. And even if it's kind of messy, I just want to be part of that, right? Even if other people don't understand. And I think for me that, when I started working for Steve Schwarzman at that job, I was like, yeah, this is what I guess I've been kind of chasing my whole life is this high of doing something different. Because for the first time in, I guess, philanthropic history, we're trying to fundraise this amount of money for an American philanthropist to start this college in China. I think that was my drug, right? I finally realized it, just doing something different. I don't know if it's good or bad, right? It's just who I am. I just didn't want to be doing what other people were doing. But that's not to say that I didn't feel like bad. I think I've mentioned this before where I would look at our peers who were, you know, maybe they were like, at HBS by then, or they had like moved from banking to private equity or to a hedge fund. They were at like some startup that just IPO'd in Silicon Valley. And I would definitely still have this like, I could have done that, maybe I should have done that. I think we all need to acknowledge that it's actually very normal to have those feelings. And I think we've mentioned it before, but I think what was really great, and I kind of hate saying this, and it's my first time saying this, but having such a big client like Steve Schwartzman finally made me feel I could really talk about my job or what I did for a living with my friends because they could understand, right? They may not understand, like, what's nonprofit fundraising? What's like, you know whatever other microfinance, the tourism, whatever. But if you tell them my client is Steve Schwartzman, they don't care about anything else. Right. So I have yeah. to say part of it was that there is still definitely that external factor that made me feel more confident about my path. And I don't, you know, I don't know if it's good. It, maybe it's not. Right. Why do I need that? But I think especially for our friends and peers, that mattered a lot. Yeah.
0: You know? I'm kind of wondering about a rephrasing. Right. You said like, OK, then when you started doing this project you f- feel like your friends knew what you were doing
2: I mean I wonder okay. not really yeah. right you didn't really well, know but
0: well but I wonder if it's like less about knowing what you're doing as it is like knowing kind of how to size up what you're doing right yes I, I think, think that would be what, a more accurate yes exactly they could right
2: yes they could pigeonhole me better like right. how prestigious is it oh
1: high on prestige list okay right
0: yeah because it's like okay you you are doing the same thing that you were doing the year before right which Correct. is fundraising for nonprofits, but then like now there's this name attached to it. So if you tell people, oh, I do fundraising for nonprofits at this organization that maybe not a lot of people have heard of, it's like, okay, like, I don't know what that means. But then you're like, oh, and I'm doing this for this, you know, guy who runs this huge financial institution. They're like, oh, okay, well now I I can put a tag on it. Right. I mean, I definitely sympathize because I struggle with that. It's like why I could be doing the same thing, but depending on the organization or who I'm working with, like, you know, it just feels like, yeah, then the question of, well, would do you do? It just like totally changes.
2: I think you're right, Jeanette. And I think the lesson, you know, when I look back at least on my story thus far is that again, even though I felt like I was kind of basically wandering around and trying to figure things out. But again, the places that I picked to wander generally had the name. And I have thought about that a lot in my 30s. And I have come to the conclusion that for me, I don't want to say for other people, it was a huge weakness. And I think something that may have really helped me become more lost. Mm. And, And I'm not going to blame Harvard for this, but I think as a product of having gone to an institution that is very well branded, that everybody knows the brand of, to be among peers who are working for other branded institutions and branded jobs For me, I absorbed that mindset that this is what I need in order to justify, one, my Harvard education, two, to signal to myself that I'm worth something, as opposed to intrinsically I am interested in this thing or I find intrinsic value in this thing. Maybe maybe there was some. I'm not going to say there wasn't. I didn't find intrinsic value, but I would say it was very muddled, right? But I was able to somehow convince myself that I wanted something intrinsically for itself, as opposed for the brand that it would lend me and how it would make me seem in the eyes of others. No one wants to admit, you know what? I am vain. <laughs> like, no, yeah, one- no, no, and it's a lot of pressure, you know, and I definitely had, obviously it's also related to self-confidence, right? Because I felt like my self-confidence was definitely intertwined with the brand of the organization or the type of position that I was in. And it's taken a really, really long time To kind of, I wouldn't say it's not there anymore in my life, even today as a almost 37-year-old person and having worked in so many jobs and industries, it's less definitely now. I sometimes look back and I'm like, wow, I was so oblivious, you know, in my 20s. And I bought into this like self-delusion that I created to justify, you know, these decisions back then. And I just want to be really honest about that
0: because I think that was probably the case for a lot of us, maybe. Yeah, Or maybe not. I don't know. No, I think that was definitely a part of it for me as well. I mean, for me, there was a financial aspect of it, too. but I definitely like the kind of the branding and being affiliated with these organizations where, yeah, people, quote, know what you're doing. And I would say, yeah, it still plays a part. Even I would like to think it's not as strong of an influence. It's still there. Yeah, no,
2: I mean, I think that I don't want to judge myself or others too harshly. I mean, I was in my 20s, right? And but I just want to put that out there because I don't the discussion around this often i don't see honest conversation about it yeah i mean it's like oh you to harvard oh my god what are you gonna do are you gonna start
1: a company like oh my god you know like it's like there's almost like so much expectation and then we have to constantly size each other up that we are advancing all the time still and we are making it and we are at the top of our field it's a lot of pressure so then when you're fork in the road of i don't know you are bored or you got laid off or whatever. It's like, can we actually carve out sufficient time and space for us to actually wonder, what is it that I want? What do I truly, truly want?
2: Because it's it's not a straightforward question. You know, when I look back on what did I really want? It wasn't anything specific. You know, it wasn't really money. Uh, although money was nice. Like I finally started making decent money in my what, like 26, 27. And I saved up a lot of money. I was like. I need to catch up. I need to do my 401k. I need to do my Roth IRA. And then I freaked out. I was like, oh my God, everybody else has like a four or five year start on me. Ah! Compound interest. I know! Compound interest. I would just say, yeah, I kind of started late on that. Don't worry. Better late than never. What helped, honestly, at the end of the day a lot was basically removing myself from the environment that would cause me to kind of make these decisions. So uh, long story short, after, you know, Steve Schwarzman, I actually left the company and I went, I actually went back to China to go work for my dad. Um, And it was really tough. I mean, this is like a conversation for another time What's it like to work with your father who has like your temperament, but like times 10. Oh my God, I just learned. And I feel like that time in China, those five years, both with the aspect of working with my dad, working at a company that was all Chinese, Like I'm talking like I'm the only American person there. But then also having my social life be mostly, you know, a lot of expats. It was just really intense and a crucible for me, right? And it it removed me from this the sphere that I had been kind of floating in and out of in the U.S. that was populated by a lot of our peers and like the decisions they were making. I could kind of cut that out. And I think it really took that and moving myself to a totally different reality to kind of start changing. And also I had a really huge shift in my spiritual life. Like I became a Christian when I was in China and people, it's really funny when I say that, like you became a Christian in China? That is so weird. But so a lot of things happened there and and I do think that being physically removed from, you know, the locus of influence that we were just talking about with our peers and what they were doing was really important for me. I don't think I had enough internal motivation or strength to overcome those external influences unless I could remove myself, literally like physically remove myself from them.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's so much noise, you know, you just go to a happy hour and the first thing out of everyone's mouth is, what do you do? And it's such a loaded question of like figuring out like, who am I? And like, am I the alpha in this circle? Like what? It's just it's pretty gross. So where are you at now, Kate? I mean... Now you're about to have your second
2: child. And are you going to keep working for your dad? Yeah. yeah, no. Well, so I am technically. And actually it's, it's even now the projects that I've taken are like the ones that are really cool and interesting. Like my clients are both in Africa. It's a project to basically develop an Africa-centric ranking system for universities because all the university ranking systems that currently exist are very much focused on sort of like Western cultural attributes and certain factors that are not relevant to Sub-Saharan Africa. Anyway, so it's very cool. But I'm at this point now where like, okay, it's really cool. But the reality of it is like kind of tough because, you know, with two kids taking like 6 a.m., 5 a.m. morning phone calls sucks. The client too is great, but also it's just the pace of work is, you know, it's how do I say that the context is new? But the type of work that I'm doing in that context is the same kind of work that I've been doing since 2013. And I'm kind of ready to like move on from that. And I also am ready to take more control of my schedule. I think I mentioned this maybe in a previous episode where I was complaining to my husband about having to take a 5 a.m. phone call. He's like, why don't you just push back and say no? I was like, boo, but it's the client. And he was like, so you're pregnant. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, I still have that mindset. And I, I guess after, like, especially during the pandemic, I'm like, I'm kind of over that. I don't really want, if I can choose to, have to do that anymore. And it's not because I don't want to work at 6, five a.m. It's more like I want something where I can control, like Jeanette, like how I want to be around my kids. And also where I don't have to feel subject to these, like, you have to do this because this is your client situation. And so I don't know. You know, I think I have a couple of friends who are trying to convince me to like get into investing. Because they think that there are not very many women and also women of my background, like being Asian American in this space. And it does impact a lot of what gets invested in. You know, I have friends who has, you know, she has a couple of business ideas that she has no issue finding the funding for, but she would be interested if I were ever interested in working with her. And so I guess there are just some options. And I don't, I don't really know. Like, unlike Jeanette, I don't feel the strong urge to start my own company, like I would be happy to join a team. And there, the team is really important too. But for myself, I already know I'm not the kind of zero to one person. Sorry, if you know startups, zero to one is like basically from like, conception of idea and turning it into like a startup. I'm not that kind of person. My husband is. He's done it successfully. But, you know, I was trying to delude myself all the years again into thinking how cool it would be to be like a startup founder. But I am, you know, I realize I'm really not that kind of person, which I feel very relieved at. Right. Because then it's just less pressure on myself. So I don't really know. I kind of feel like I'm (laughs) I'm like 25 again. But the difference this time is that I have much more self-awareness, right? So whatever I pick to do or transition to doing, I think I would do it because I think based on specific criteria and what I think I would really want versus what I think looks cool or has a brand. Although that's still tempting, you know, there's still tempting aspects of that, but. So I'm
1: trying to figure out what your non-negotiable is. Is is it like intellectual curiosity? Like
2: I need to always be learning a lot. And if I'm not, I'm bored. Like yes. is is I, that I think, your... yeah, and not just intellectual appears, but like sort of a different like I mentioned earlier, something that is new or different, right? Like like, uh, like you wanna be early adopter. Is that kind of like, or even this type of thing, even if it seems very specific and maybe kind of obscured to some people, has not been done before, right? Think about it. Like the project I'm working on now for the client, there's never been like an Africa-centric ranking system that's been adopted. I, you know, African universities don't have like very good data tracking, but we did that project for the World Bank. That was like also first, you know, same thing with the Steve Schwarzman situation. Like that's the kind of thing where it's not the prestige level necessarily, or even how big the impact is outside of its space, but it's just new. It's like the first kind of it's the first time that something like this is being done. Even if it's in a small space, I just find that really, it's like my drug. I just think it's really interesting. That's what's interesting for me. So you really thrive in uncertainty and you like to create the first. Yeah. And I i will fully admit it probably has to do with narcissism. Like I want i want to do that. I think it's really cool. The cool factor is cool. I mean, it. yeah, it sounds cool. Yeah, it sounds cool. You know, <laughs> there's
1: nothing wrong with doing that. It's just knowing that about yourself. Yeah. And and placing yourself in situations where you're going to be happy and like be able to add value because that's what you want to do. So I think I commend you for recognizing your narcissistic self.
0: Good. Thanks. <laughs> Susan, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I, don't <laughs> I don't know, know if I that. even like phrase it as narcissism, right? A part of my journey has been just accepting that Yeah, the world doesn't need me to save it. And actually, it might be more helpful to the world if I am happy in doing the thing that I'm doing rather than grumpy and irritable and feeling like I'm self-sacrificing and twisting myself into the shape that I think other people want me to be. But from my perspective, you don't need to call it narcissism. It's just like you trying to be yourself right in the world. And I don't think you need to apologize for that. Or, you know, I don't think like what you're doing is bad or harmful to other people. Like it might be even good because, you know, then you're able to bring your full self and like all your energy towards doing whatever it is that you're doing.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking about like, what bullet point would I write on your LinkedIn profile and feel like no emotion around it if you were a dude, right? Like thrives in uncertain environments, like enjoys establishing. Yeah, I'm like,
2: cool, you know that. You know what you're intrinsically motivated by. Most people don't. I guess it's true. I mean, I finally come to terms, you know, after all these years, I'm not motivated by moving vertically. I'm always really interested in moving horizontally. And even though in my twenties, I always wished people would understand that because I felt like then I would feel more valued. Now I kind of don't care about that anymore. Right. It's sort of like, I think in your late 30s, you kind of have a reckoning. Hopefully yeah. well, I mean,
1: ugh, God, I'm going to be terrible here. I just feel like when I was in my 20s, I'd be like, oh, gosh, when people are in their 30s and 40s and they ha- they have kids, they just like give up. Like that was my perception. You know, I was like, you don't work as hard or like my dad was always like work as hard as you can in your 20s and 30s because you can get tired. I'm like, yeah, that's because you got tired. You know, like I was so arrogant about being like, I thought we're all running to the same finish line here when really it's like whoa wait a minute like all of our decisions are shaped by our life experiences our financial needs of whatever situation we're living in or whatever and also like we are all just fundamentally different people that get happy from really different things and nobody like we're not lemmings so why do I, why do I expect us to be lemmings you know like a part of me was very disappointed that i wasn't a mckinsey consultant even though i never applied what? <laughs>
2: i think you make a really good point and i think what i realized is i had this conversation with one of my favorite chefs like someone i deeply respect he's like a philosopher and a chef he's he's in china also incidentally his restaurant is the first two-star michelin restaurant in that part of china anyway the first uh, you say yeah, yeah. <laughs> i know whatever i i totally he was he he didn't need michelin to recognize him but he told me once he was we were talking about you know his journey and how he's like in his 50s now, I think. And he was saying, he's like, you know, there's a lot of pressure in modern society. He was specifically referring to China, but I believe it can be applied to the US even more so to make something of yourself when you're in your 20s, like to be a founder, to be this successful, to earn a certain amount of money. And he said, the reality is that wisdom is not necessarily always gained by achieving those things. And he was like, whatever happened to the idea that you have to earn the respect through your experience over a time. And I got to thinking about how, you know, we have those Forbes 30 under 30 lists, how we judge each other by, oh, what are you earning? What have you attained? What, you know, position you have by a certain age in some way that is creating this sort of artificial, I mean, it looks like then you would be really working really hard or achieving a lot, but what does that really mean? me, right? And it's like a very ex- existential question. Is it really meaningful? And I feel like we can go into this, but you know, a lot of startups that are founded by under 30 somethings, they take advantage of VC money and they run burn through it like crazy and have really, shitty, pro- have really shitty products. <laughs> oh, and, yes, yeah. you know, like we can get into that whole thing. My whole point is I, I think there's an illusion and that we sometimes worship that illusion. And I don't know how good it really is. And it has nothing to do with now I'm lazy, so I don't really want to aim for that. I think our definition of working hard or being successful is maybe really narrow. Right. Totally.
1: But don't you feel so insecure because Mark yeah. Zuckerberg is yes. one year ahead of us?
2: Sure. And he's a good millionaire,
1: Yeah. And it's like, well, he didn't finish college and neither did Bill Gates. He didn't finish Harvard College. And I'm like, oh, I wish I could just have a great idea and no one else have done it yet. And it'd be really needed in the market. Sure, you can still think that, but you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I'm mean, I I'm loving the wisdom that you're telling me about what your chef friend said. And I unfortunately took a lot of that advice and crashed and burned with recruiters, okay? Because my mom died when she was 38, I, in college and post-college, I would do a lot of informationals with older people and be like, What do you regret in life? Like, if you could do it all over again. Like, I had these conversations all the time and I was so obsessed with them because I wanted to somehow optimize the life that I have because I don't know how long I'm going to live. And the big advice was just like, follow your heart. Terrible advice because... (laughs) When you follow your heart, you might not make a lot of money, save for your retirement, be hireable for the next job, are considered a flight risk by recruiters. Like I've had a very (laughs) unfortunate path to get to here. And I look back on it and I feel very, now I feel proud of it because I love where I am now. But along the way, I was a fucking LinkedIn hot mess. Like you're like, and then you did what? And then you did what? And I'm just like, Yeah, I want to talk all about it and talk about my non-negotiables because if we don't ask these questions, you know, are we spending the time right with the time that we have? So we'll talk about that next time. And we're going to end this with some inside thoughts. My question for you today is what was your most iconic husband moment that made you cringe before you got married to them? So you're still dating your partner and something happened where their reaction was just like, So, them where you're just like, oh, that's how they behave. Here's my example I'm two months into dating Marvin at business school, and I'm getting all cute on the couch and I'm talking to him. And then I like sit on his glasses and break them. (laughs) I like, I like break his glasses. (laughs) And they're like, they're like one of these like really rimless glasses. Like he looks like kind of like a scientist. Like he just, and I was like, oh, (laughs) horrified. Because our frame, like, is broken. They're so expensive. Like, there's barely any like wire on it. You know. I think he got glasses that look like Steve Jobs glasses, and I was like, oh my! I fucking like sat on your like probably like three or five hundred dollar glasses. And the most iconic Marvin moment was he just kind of sat there, and then he picked it up. And he he found some replace like old glasses, and he just put them on. And then we just kept talking about whatever. And I was like horrified. I was like apologizing profusely. I was like. I am so sorry. Like, I don't have any money to give you to pay back for your glasses. Like, I don't know what I'm going to do. This is like one or two years before Warby Parker launched, right? And he did not freak out. He was like the coolest cat about it. And I just feel like if it was a reverse and he broke my glasses, like I would have like kind of lost my shit and to pay for it. Right. But it was, it was one of those moments where I was like, wow, like we're really different people. Did you have a moment that was a, Iconic moment of just how your partner is about something where you're like, I would have never reacted that way, but you did. That's so you.
2: Yeah, sure. I'll follow Jeanette's thinking, I'll think of mine. So Nerf is someone who doesn't, he doesn't like plan for like life things. It just kind of like things happen, right? Uh, or he thinks that, oh, I can just get this thing done. So basically decided to propose to me. I learned this obviously all after the fact. And but he also had like a bunch of board exams, right? Like his qualifying boards. So basically he was like, okay, my last board exam is a month before I plan to propose to kids. I'll just think about everything after that, right? So he didn't do anything. So then finally he takes his board exam and he's like, I'm done. So first of all, How this man thought that he was going to find a very specific engagement ring that is, by the way, so yellow diamond, but like not a huge yellow diamond, but like a smaller yellow diamond in this particular teardrop shape and all the logistics of arranging all this in four weeks. Okay. Did you give him the specs? Yeah. yeah, yeah, But he already <laughs> it. Yeah, she did. And he wasn't going to do anything, because I don't trust him. He knows this. He wasn't going to do anything about it until, like, basically after he was done with the sports, because he was so busy. So he just calls up Tiffany's, so was like, hey, do you have, literally, hey, do you have, like, a 0. 0.8 carat uh, yellow diamond in a teardrop shape that's available for a ring? And they were like, sir, we don't do custom. Basically, unless you're like a right? But they didn't say that. And they were like, we have one that's in Seoul, but it's in a necklace and we can't. And he was like, oh, great. Can I have it? And they were like, no, sir. So, <laughs> and then he like calls his second cousin, who's like a diamond dealer. And so then his cousin has to like go find diamonds sourced from like India, like Amsterdam. Basically, it's like cut, literally cut down to the wire. And then his mom wants to pick the specific diamonds. They have to FedEx fucking like tens of thousands dollars worth of diamonds choices to his mom. And then she picks it and then she FedExes it to New York to get set. And then literally the ring arrives. He was like panicking. The afternoon we leave for San Francisco and he was going to propose the next day. So he actually in the interim, he like tried to buy backup choices. So he went to like BlueNile.com and was like looking for backup choices. <laughs> 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 this is literally him. Like, he just thinks he's like, oh, it's fine. Easy. Like, you know, point air Like, something that most people would be like, maybe you just spend a little bit more time, like, kind of figuring this out. He's like, ah, oh, I can do it in, like, a month. But he gets the shit done, is the thing. Like, this is him. He brute forces shit. I just can't believe he knows a diamond dealer. Oh, no, no, content. So if you're Indian and you're I, from where they are. In, no, no, no. There's a specific area in India, Gujarat. And Surat is where, like, most of the diamonds in the world are cut. Hmm. Yes. So everybody from Gujarat has a cousin of some degree who is a diamond dealer. I can't believe you guys were FedExing.
0: I know. That sounds very... Yes. That sounds very, very
2: possible shit, man. But you guys didn't think it was crazy that he'd just friggin' call up Tiffany's and be like, hey, I want this diamond. Can I have it? But that's no. his, very him. I, I, I would have done that. I would have been oh, like... Oh, you yeah, I would have I was, I was like, him. he has no qualms. He's like, so? I'll just call up like, you know, whatever, Prada, and be like, hey, do you have this? He doesn't <laughs> have it, which is great about him, but also sometimes like makes me cringe because I'm like social conventions should be observed But these things. oh my god
1: that's so intense and that's even before the proposal like sometimes people are just nervous during the proposal and here there's this like whole production line happening and then they make a new line of like rings just for you oh my god what about you Jeanette what was an iconic Jake moment before you mm-hmm. got married
0: yeah I don't know if this exactly fits your criteria but I remember in college we were sitting with some friends and there was this other guy that we were both friends with and uh he looks at Jake's shoes, he's like, Are those my shoes, man? And Jake's like <laughs> Yeah, I just borrowed them. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and
0: then he's like, Are those my pets? <laughs> and he's like, Yeah, I think so. There there was this whole stage of college where Jake was I think he was like not wearing shoes for a while. Oh, yeah, you mentioned that. He was like so gross. Aggressively borrowing things. So wait, because he didn't
2: have his own or he was too lazy to do laundry.
0: No, he just had a kind of conception of the world where he would give and receive freely. (laughs) Without asking. Sometimes the asking was a little loose, but I mean, fortunately, most of his friends got to know this part of him pretty quickly. And also he had a lot of other redeeming qualities, so they were mostly cool with it. But yeah, I remember that was a very Jake moment, like especially that time of life, Jake. I'm assuming he doesn't. Does he still do stuff like this? No, no, he doesn't. He doesn't. Also, we don't live with other men his size, right? But he's much better about just taking things without asking people. Oh, my God. And that's Insight Thoughts. All right. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Jeanette here again. Was there something you heard in this episode that made you think of a friend? If so, please text them this episode the next minute you have free. We would appreciate it. And chances are good that your friend will, too. Thanks. And we're looking forward to catching you next time, whether that's on your drive back from drop off, folding laundry or picking up around the house at the end of the day. We see you and we're sending encouragement.